Hi, thanks for joining us this week on Menlo Church Online. We are a place where everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything is possible. We are a community of people who believe in God and truly believe that he will do things in the Bay Area. So our hope this week is that you would be able to connect with him and hear what God has to tell you. So enjoy the rest of this message. Welcome on this important, oh, thank you, thank you. Welcome on this important day of football and on this really, really important holiday weekend. I'm so glad that you are here today. As Brett said, we are right in the middle of this really great series on the parables. And today we are talking about being offended. Have you ever heard something so offensive that you weren't even mad? You just thought, wow. That was really offensive. The world's foremost New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, says that Jesus specifically crafted the parable of the Good Samaritan to shock his audience. In short, this is an offensive passage. Researchers tell us that the sensation of being offended requires a specific set of psychological circumstances where a central part of our self-image is being questioned. Now, our self-image, really simply, that's just how we like to think about ourselves. It's our view of ourselves. Our self-image is a view of ourselves we construct in such a way that we can feel confident as we move through our daily lives and in the face of life's problems. That's how self-image kind of works. Katie, my wife, and Margot, my daughter, we were once traveling with a really big group, and it was kind of our first trip through the airport with a toddler, so we had catastrophically overpacked. We had like a giant cart full of luggage and a huge car seat. Margot was strapped to my wife, Katie, and as we made our way through security, I was feeling calm and collected and competent, like I was a fantastic husband and father. And when we made it finally to our gate, we arrived, and I noticed that I was feeling some gastrointestinal discomfort. So I mentioned it to the big group we were traveling with, and someone traveling with us said, maybe it's your anxiety. Of course, I found this deeply offensive because I like to think of myself as calm and collected and competent, and here this person was forcing me to reconsider my view of myself. Now, in this particular instance, I was vindicated because my gastrointestinal discomfort turned out to be the stomach flu. Everyone on our vacation got it. The trip was ruined. This goes to show what is really at stake when we are defending our view of ourselves, how aggressively we will defend our self-image, because I would rather my vacations be ruined by the neurovirus than to have to reconsider my view of myself. Now, a very common problem is that we have inaccuracies in our self-perceptions. We have wrongly perceived ourselves. Maybe it's that we overestimate our capabilities or inflate our moral qualities, but it turns out that an accurate view of ourselves is indispensable for spiritual maturity. If you want to grow spiritually, a great place to start is to simply ask, do I rightly perceive myself? Do I see myself accurately? Now, sometimes someone might unfairly and wrongly question your self-perception in a way that's intended to hurt you, maybe through an insult or an accusation that is unfair. That can be very hurtful and is wrong, but that's not what we're talking about. 
What we're talking about today is how sometimes it is really, really helpful for someone to question the inaccuracies of our self-perception. So as followers of Jesus, we must allow Jesus to help us get a more accurate view of ourselves, even when that is really, really painful. We have to be open to the idea that Jesus might want to offend us, as he does for this lawyer we're about to meet. N.T. Wright suggests that the parables of Jesus are so powerful because they're working at many different levels all at the same time. Jesus was a master of the format, the art form of telling parables. And I want to take a look at a few of the different layers of the parable of the Good Samaritan to see what Jesus is up to. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus has sent out 70 of his disciples to minister to the world in his name, and it's very successful. Many are made whole in the name of Jesus because of the ministry of the 70, and as, and, and as Jesus is celebrating the great success of these 70 disciples, this lawyer interrupts, and that's where we pick up. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it there? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, passed by the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near to him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured out oil and wine on them, and then he put the, him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and when I came ba come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. The first layer of this parable is very straightforward. This is a passage about love, not some wishy-washy kind of love, Jesus's kind of love. And Jesus's kind of love requires great action. To use Bob Goff's smart and simple phrase in Jesus's way of thinking about love, love does. And not just anything, love doesn't just do any old thing, love doesn't just do any kind of action. Followers of Jesus, you and me, are called to an otherworldly generosity. Let's talk about this lawyer. My dad is a lawyer and I called him in preparation for this sermon and I asked about his favorite lawyer joke and what he said I can't repeat. Lawyers in Jesus' day were experts in scriptures. They had studied scripture their whole lives, and very often in the New Testament, they are the bad guys. They think of their job as to test Jesus, and it turns out that the way the New Testament describes it, it was Satan's job to test Jesus, and the lawyers of Jesus' day, the experts in scriptures, very often they have joined the side of Satan. Now, this particular lawyer seems to be genuinely seeking Jesus. He seems to be genuinely a part of those 70 disciples. And furthermore, he's curious about the right types of things. He's asking about eternal life. 
Now, eternal life in English, I think, is an unhelpful kind of translation. In English, eternal life is an unhelpful kind of phrase because it makes us think about the afterlife. Now, that's certainly part of it, but in Greek, the idea, the phrase of eternal life is inviting us to think about God's kind of life with God's character and God's resources. Life with God and for God and under God's care. And for us, that means peace and partnership with God in our daily lives. That's what the idea and the phrase of eternal life is supposed to mean. And the Bible is emphatic that that kind of eternal life is available right now in our lives through a partnership with Jesus, through friendship, a trusting relationship with Jesus. So the lawyer, he is asking the right kinds of questions. How do I have peace with God in my life? How do I partner with God in my daily life? So maybe this lawyer is kind of like you and me, wrong about a great many things, but genuinely seeking to find and follow Jesus. And also, here again, maybe really similar to you and I in this passage, the lawyer is working very hard to show the crowd and to show Jesus that he is a good person who knows the right answers. In the words of the Bible, he seeks to justify himself. And you can almost feel him wrestling with his self-perception. He wants to think of himself as a really good person. And here in this passage, he has set out to prove it. And maybe really similar to you and I, he ends up in seeking to prove himself to be a good person, he ends up saying the wrong thing. He asks the wrong kind of question. He asks, who is my neighbor? And scholars suggest that we should read this as hearing him say, who is not my neighbor? Or where is the line between neighbor and not neighbor? Or maybe even who can I exclude without feeling guilty from my neighborly generosity? He asks an ungenerous question. And to instruct this man who has inadvertently revealed his instinctual lack of generosity, Jesus tells the story of a truly generous man and says, go and do likewise. Now, you and I are supposed to hear the story of the Good Samaritan and think, how do we become more like this Samaritan? How do we love like this Samaritan is loving this complete stranger? And as we think about that and we seek to do that, there's three things of note about this Samaritan's generosity that we have to be thinking about. First, his big act of generosity comes at great personal cost. It's very costly to him. Not only does he stop to apply expensive first aid upon the man's wounds, but then he puts this man in need upon his own animal, which means that the Samaritan is going to have to walk all the way to the destination. Furthermore, when he arrives there, he takes him to an inn and he pays what amounts to two days' wages, what the Samaritan would have earned working over two days. And then on top of that, he says to the innkeeper, whatever else it costs to nurse this man back to full health, I will pay you upon my return. One scholar says that we should think of this care as excessive. It goes far beyond the bare necessities to help this man survive, to genuinely nurture this man back to a thriving state. This is a costly and excessive act of generosity that we are studying here. Secondly, we should see that the generosity of the Samaritan comes at great risk to him. This is an actual historical road. We'll see a picture of it in a moment. And it was notably, uh, notoriously very dangerous. Everyone knew that that was a dangerous road. That's why Jesus chooses it as the setting of this passage. And when people hear about it, they think, oh yes, I know that road to be very dangerous with lots of robbers. And so by helping this man in need, the Samaritan has exposed himself to assault by these very same robbers that assaulted this man. It's an act of great risk to even stop and help. 
And finally, and maybe most importantly, we should see in the Samaritan's act of otherworldly generosity that it comes across a great ideological gap. We'll say a lot more about this in a moment, but it's sufficient here to say that in Jesus' day, the Samaritans and the Jews simply hated each other. And part of what we are seeing here has to do with Jesus' great insistence that we love everyone, even and up to including our enemies. That is part of this layer of that Uh, of this parable, that Jesus is inviting us to exclude no one from our love. He's very insistent that we should even love our enemies in this generous and kind way. This excessive risky love that crosses great social divides was not common in Jesus' day. It is not common in our day. And even though it is uncommon, it is precisely Jesus' great hope and expectation for you and me that we are frequently performing acts just like the Samaritan, acts of costly, risky generosity that crosses human divides. That is what Jesus calls us to and expects of us. Now, despite the rarity of these kinds of acts of generosity, I once witnessed it in a really simple and profound way. In seminary, I had two neighbors that sort of notoriously did not like each other, and it was a close-knit community. Everyone in our apartment complex went to this uh, same seminary, Fuller Seminary, so everyone there could feel the tension between these two people who didn't like each other. And it was apparent to all of us, all the rest of us, that both parties to this conflict were somehow at fault. One of the parties to the conflict was a single mom. She worked part-time as she was finishing her PhD student, or her PhD program. And one Saturday morning, this woman and her teenage son went out into the parking lot of our apartment complex and washed the filthy car of the other guy. And I think that she did this at great cost. If you've ever been to a graduate school, graduate program of any kind, you know that a few hours on a Saturday morning is a huge personal cost to spend serving someone else. She did it at great risk about how it would be received by this other guy, and across a great gap that is unusual in our world, simply they did not like each other, and it's very uncommon to help someone that you don't like. And we all got to watch as their friendship was instantly transformed. These kinds of acts of generosity are wildly transformative in human relationships. Now, interestingly, Martin Luther King Jr., whose ministry and life we're reflecting upon and letting shape us, we're celebrating it this weekend, in his final sermon before he was assassinated, he spoke on this very passage, the Good Samaritan. And he said this about the Good Samaritan's otherworldly generosity. Indeed, that Samaritan was great because he made the first law of his life not self-preservation, but other preservation. Followers of Jesus are called to love in actual ways that are excessive, risky, and bridge wide gaps in human culture. And we should find Jesus' command to love people in other-centered ways really offensive. It suggests that my normal actions, which I like to think are loving and generous, are in fact really about me. It turns out that when I give to someone, even in what I think are loving and generous ways, I really probably only give right up to the point where I look good or I get to feel good about my act of generosity. Those are actually probably the main agenda items for me. It turns out that when I give to someone, even when I'm generous, I'm really focusing on myself. It is a self-focused act. In maybe Martin Luther King Jr.'s most famous quote, he said that life's most persistent and urgent question is what are you doing for others? But it turns out that when I do something generous, it's not even for others. It is really to reinforce my own perception of myself that I am a good person who knows the right answers. 
when I give to someone, very often it is really about me. Now what we said about this first layer is that this is a passage about Jesus's kind of love, but it is also about knowing the right answer and still failing to act. And so this love from, or this move from the self-preservation that I find so instinctual, it comes so natural to me, to the other preservation that Jesus is calling to requires not just knowing the right answer, it's going to require a great transformation of my heart. And this radical change of heart that is going to be required from us leads us to the next layer of what Jesus is doing in this parable. As we think about this second layer, a a real true transformation of your heart and of my heart, let's talk about that Samaritan. Centuries of religious and political violence between the Jews and the Samaritans going both ways created great animosity between the Jews of Jesus' day and the Samaritans of Jesus' day. So much so that in John chapter 4, when Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well, the Gospel of John includes this explanatory note, the last verse of this passage I'm about to read. A Samaritan woman came to draw water at this well, and Jesus said to her, would you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans? Here Jesus is enacting this other-centered love of enemies that would not have been expected of someone like him in his day. The hatred between these two people was so great and intense that in our passage, the lawyer cannot even say the word Samaritan. Instead, he calls him the one who is merciful. He cannot even say the name. The hatred was so great. And this religious and political animosity ought to make the compassion of the Samaritan even more striking to us. What defines the Samaritan is his action, this act of otherworldly generosity. But what drives that generosity is his heart, his compassionate heart. Compassion means to suffer with. Really helpful idea that when we see someone in need, we are supposed to suffer with them. Which means that this Samaritan was drawn to sacrificial generosity because he saw someone in need and it caused him a great gut level pain to see that need. When he saw a need, it caused him to suffer too and this ought to be really offensive to us. Because we are really a lot more like the other guys in this passage, the priest and the Levite. They would have known that scripture commanded them to be compassionate and to help this person. And here Jesus makes a really great joke. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is an actual historical road and it was extremely narrow. It was a a, a narrow footpath. Here's a picture from the modern day with some hikers to help give it some perspective. And so you could see that might have been dangerous. There's lots of places where you could hide, where robbers might lay in wait to prey upon someone. But for the priest and the Levite to pass on the other side of this extremely narrow footpath is an invitation for us to think of them tiptoeing by this unconscious man or maybe scooching along the edge of the canyon. It took them a lot of effort to avoid this man. To maintain our indifference requires great effort at blindness and avoidance. That's what we learn from the priest and the Levite. Martin Luther King Jr. from that final sermon of his life says this, when we use our imagination concerning the reason why the priest and the Levite did not stop to help the wounded man, numerous things might come to mind, but there is one possibility which is often overlooked. It is possible that they were simply afraid. The Jericho Road was a dangerous road. So I can imagine that the first question the priest and Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? 
But then the good Samaritan came by, and by the very nature of his concern, reversed that question, if I do not stop and help this man, what will happen to him? (coughs) And then in this final sermon, Martin Luther King Jr. goes on to make just this really insightful distinction between enforceable laws and unenforceable laws. He wrote this. Enforceable laws are obligations which can be regulated by the codes of society and the vigorous implementation of law enforcement agencies. But unenforceable obligations are those which the laws of society cannot reach. They deal with the inner attitudes and genuine person-to-person relationships and expressions of compassions which law books cannot regulate and jails cannot rectify. They are obligations which can be dealt with only by one's commitment to an inner law, a commandment written on the heart. And the good Samaritan will always remain in the consciousness of humankind because he was obedient to that which could not be enforced. And then to conclude the final sermon of his life, Martin Luther King Jr. ends with this grand flourish I wanted to share with you. No longer can we be engaged in the luxury of passing by on the other side. Such folly was once mere moral failure, but in today's world, it can only lead to universal suicide. The alternative to a world of brotherhood to match the geographical neighborhood we live in may well be a civilization plunged into an inferno more devastating than any hell we can imagine. We cannot survive long as a species living spiritually apart in a world that is geographically together. As you leave this place of worship, my friends, go out with the conviction that all humans are brothers and sisters tied in a single garment of destiny. In the final analysis, I must not ignore the wounded man on life's Jericho road because he is a part of me and I am a part of him. His agony diminishes me and his salvation enlarges me. And what we learn from the Samaritan's compassionate heart and from the life of Martin Luther King Jr. is that a compassionate heart sees people differently. And I can't help but think that this is just really hard to comprehend. It's really hard to think of how this might actually work in our real daily lives. President of Fuller Seminary, Dr. Mark Laberton, tells a great story of a modern-day Good Samaritan right across the bridge in First Pres, Berkeley. He wrote this. On the other end of the phone, Doris explained to me that she would have had the muffins on time for church, but she'd been kidnapped. That morning, Doris parked in her usual spot adjacent to our church in Berkeley and was reaching back inside her car for her basket of oatmeal muffins to give to volunteers. And as she leaned in, she was powerfully struck from behind and pushed back into her her car, across the console and onto the passenger side. Breathless, a young man jumped into the driver's seat and took off with Doris riding shotgun. That Doris was in her early 80s and had had her elegant silver blonde hair done as usual at 11 a.m. on a Friday didn't matter in that moment. Suddenly, everything had changed for Doris. Dr. Laberton writes, I made my way straight from from church to her tidy apartment after receiving the phone call. Shaken but steady, Doris greeted me at the door. Every protective pastoral muscle in my body was firing within me as I leapt at the chance to surround Doris with love and support in the midst of this trauma. But on that day as other days, Doris proved to be more my pastor than I was hers. She told me that after the assailant zoomed off with her in the the passenger seat, she said, the first thing I did, of course, was to ask his name. He said it was Jesse. So I said, Jesse, what are you doing? And he said, I'm kidnapping you so we can go to your ATM and get money out of your account. And I said, Jesse, why are you doing this? 
And Desi Doris reported, he told me it was because he needed money for drugs. He was addicted and needed a hit. So I said, well, Jesse, it's a terrible thing to be addicted. You really shouldn't be a drug addict. It's not the way you should be living your life. But by then, Doris explained they'd arrived at the first ATM, and after intimidating her for the password, Jesse jumped out to get cash and then jumped back in the car, and they sped away to the next branch. Doris explained to Jesse that what he really needed was help. His drug problem was too big for him. He needed help from God, who really loved him and understood what he was going through. And after the next branch, Doris told Jesse that he needed an effective drug rehab program, and Jesse replied defensively that he'd tried that, but Doris suggested, well, maybe he needed a better program than the one he was describing. And then she continued, Jesse, please, God loves you and he wants to help you. By the next bank, Jesse had hit the daily withdrawal limit for Doris's account, and since she was no longer useful to him, he pulled the car over to the side of the street and explained that he was going to leave her here with the car. He had what he needed, he'd said, but Doris wasn't done. She said, Jesse, I'm going to pray that you get caught for this because it's wrong and you shouldn't get away with, people, with doing this to people, but I'm also going to pray that you'll get caught not only so I can testify that you did it, but so that I can plead with a judge to get you into a really effective drug rehab program. You need to get caught so you can be stopped and helped. You need God to give you the strength to get off drugs and have a better life. And then she told Dr. Laberton, Jesse was just going to leave me there in the car, but I couldn't get out of the car because I was so battered and stiff. So Jesse said he would come around to the other side and help me out, which I really appreciated. He came around and opened the door and helped me out and held my arm so I could walk back around to the driver's side. And then he gave me his arm so I could get into the car. And then he put the seatbelt across me and leaned in and gave me a kiss on the cheek. So that's why I was late with the muffins, Dr. Laberton. And then Dr. Laberton said, Doris, I'm so sorry that this horrible thing happened to you. And Doris agreed. She said, it's true, this was horrible. But without missing a beat, she added, it's also really horrible that Jesse is on drugs. And then Dr. Laberton said, trying to validate her experience, it's really awful that you should get attacked and kidnapped like this. And Doris said, well, yes, but really, why not me? This sort of thing happens to people every day, thousands of people all around the world, and there's no particular reason it shouldn't be happening to me today. And then Doris finally said, Dr. Laberton, will you pray for me to move through this trauma, but will you also pray for Jesse to get into a really good drug program that God would help him? And Dr. Laberton concludes by writing, it wasn't a great surprise to me to hear that within a couple of months, Doris was at the police station identifying Jesse, and soon after that, she sat in the witness box in the courtroom and said, hello, Jesse, do you remember me? It's me, Doris. This is just what I was hoping for would happen. This is what I said I was going to pray for, this moment right here. And I told you why. I'm going to say that you were guilty and then ask this judge to help you. Yes, judge, this was the one who did it. It was him right there, Jesse. He did all those horrible things to me. But judge, you know what is also true? He really needs help. Can you get him into the best drug rehab program that you know? He really needs to get his life back. I know he's guilty but I know he also really needs help. Judge, would you please do that for him? Doris loved her enemy. She saw him in a completely different way than someone might normally see a person in Doris's uh, position. A compassionate heart sees people differently. Sometimes that means for us we need to see our spouse differently. Sometimes that means we need to see our ex-spouse differently. Sometimes that means we need to see someone at work that we cannot stand in a completely new light, and sometimes that means we need to see someone across a great cultural divide in a completely different way. A good evaluation of how we are doing at this is when you see, about, when you see these people or you hear about them on the news, do you think that is someone who God loves, that I am connected to, that is a fellow human being? 
And I think that all of this should be pretty offensive to us. Whereas I like to think of myself as a good person who knows all the right answers, the truth is I fail very often to see people the way that God sees them. The truth is when I fail to help them in a generous way, it is not because I am busy or doing something important or because I have wisely used discretion, it is because there is something wrong with my heart. And this leads us to the final and deepest layer of what Jesus is doing in this parable, the layer that I think is most offensive to us, most offensive to our self-perceptions. Let's talk about that lawyer again. Jesus knows that the lawyer, as an expert in the scriptures, would have been very familiar with this road from Jericho to Jerusalem, because on the other end, the Jerusalem end of this road, is the great temple of the Jews, which it is safe to assume the lawyer has been to many times. And Jesus would have known that because of the deep ideological divide between the lawyer and the Samaritans, the lawyer would not have been able to identify with this Samaritan as he is hearing this story. He's not hearing Jesus say this parable and thinking, oh, Jesus is telling me to be like the Samaritan. That is not a thought that would have occurred to this lawyer. Scholars tell us that Jesus is subtly but powerfully inviting this lawyer to recognize that the person the lawyer has the most in common with in this parable is the man in the ditch, beaten and stripped and robbed. Jesus is inviting this man to reappraise himself and rightly perceive that from a spiritual perspective, he is the one who is desperate and half dead, and in doing so, Jesus invites you and me to rightly see our own spiritual desperation. Canadian author Murray Andrew Pura put it this way. This story is not only about stopping to help someone whom we have been taught to mistrust or have a bitter conflict with, it's also about putting ourselves in the skin of the half-dead, the destitute, the despairing, sometimes a place where we can indeed find ourselves from time to time in one or more points along our own journey. To comprehend our utter inability to help ourselves, to swallow our pride, and to permit those we dislike or distrust to save us is to cross an enormous barrier on this earth, and certainly one of the most unspeakable for human nature. And this is why the great Catholic spiritual thinker Thomas Merton said, spiritually we must accept we will always be beginners. And this is why the Apostle Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. And this is why our pastor John Ortberg will sometimes say, without Jesus my life would be a train wreck. And this is why when we sing Amazing Grace, we partly sing that we are wretches. It is because we are a people of great spiritual need. And here is the most offensive part. Our wealth, our success, our education serve only to mask, and even then only briefly, they only briefly mask the truth about us, that we are spiritually desperate. Here is the truth about me, that despite any worldly indicators otherwise, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And once I have rightly perceived my deep spiritual need, once I've rightly integrated my spiritual desperation into the way that I understand and perceive myself, then Jesus comes to me to bandage my wounds and to pay my debts. Once I rightly see myself, then I am ready for peace and partnership with God. Then I'm ready for eternal life. And then God can plant compassion in my heart and teach me otherworldly generosity. Let's pray. Jesus, we cannot even acknowledge our needs 
our needs for you without your help. Help us to know ourselves, to understand our desperation. Jesus, offend us if you have to, but teach us that we need you desperately. We ask you to search our hearts. Forgive us for our lack of compassion, for our indifference, for our blindness and avoidance of those in need. We give to you what in our hearts might be the beginning of love or the beginning of generosity. We ask you to bring those things to fruitful completion. Teach us, Lord Jesus, everyone in here, everyone at every campus, every person of Menlo Church, teach us to be instinctually and excessively generous the way you are to us. And Jesus, I pray that you would transform the heart of Menlo Church, sharpen us into a powerful and effective tool of your compassion and generosity in the Bay Area. But God, start with us. Start with me, start with my heart, transform my heart, make it more like yours. Lord Jesus, we lift our lives up to you. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week on Menlo Church Online. Our hope this week is that this message both inspired you and helped you connect to God better. We also hope that you have several questions coming out of this week. And so if that's the case, please shoot us a note at menlo.church. And we hope to see you next week.